This is Our American Stories. And we're joined, as always, to talk about coaching parents, not kids, coaching parents, by Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, and she's with the International Family Clinic, and they're in Burlington, North Carolina. And for the past 16 years, they've been providing the best medical care and guidance to underserved families and now care for nearly 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us. Oh, so happy to be here and, and share these stories with parents that uh, are struggling. Great. And let's talk about, you know, we usually identify a specific child. I think t- today we want to identify a specific problem that we're seeing run rampant, and I think not just amongst kids. I would bet if we looked at the studies, this is hitting adults too. Um, but let's talk about sleep. Oh, boy. We have a sleep disturbance uh, pandemic. Uh, we see this in the clinic all the time, but I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are seeing this in their very homes where children are waking up in the middle of the night, they can't console themselves, and they can't comfort themselves. But I do want to give a picture to the parents of what happens many times if those sleep disturbances don't get taken care of and we allow the mind to be restful at night and also to self-comfort, which is a very important thing for children to learn early on in life. And what does that mean, self-comfort? And let's talk about the source of so many of those disturbances. Where do those disturbances come from, and how do we get to that thing called self-comfort? Well, a lot of the disturbances come from us not knowing that children don't just sleep in patterns that are similar to adult patterns. They don't just start falling into being able to sleep eight hours. That is something that children are guided into, and this happens soon after the child is born, if not immediately after. So I'll talk a little bit about what should be happening in your homes when you bring the newborn home so that you start understanding how, um, how to get that child to be able to fit into the home, but also to be restful and not be as irritable as they could be if they're not sleeping the right way. So the first thing I tell the parent is that children, newborn children, need to be in wake sleep cycles about every two and a half to three hours. And most of the time, babies have their days and their nights spun around so that at night they have their periods of wakefulness. And during the day, they sleep most of the time. And so that's when it becomes a mom's job to turn that wake-sleep pattern around. And so how do you do that? Well, moms are naturally the ones who are up more during the day, and it's very rough on her. If she has to take care of two other kids and get things done and be up all night, this is impossible. You can't run a house that way. So for her sake, but also for the child's sake, I asked her to do a certain thing. I said, okay, so I would like you to do a schedule. So every three hours, your life will be run in little little capsules of three hours. So let's say that you wake up at 7 o'clock. I need you to figure out how in those three hours you're going to have the capsule of what you need to get done between 7 and 10. So I'll give her a little example, and I'll say, so at 7 o'clock you're going to wake up, and you're going to rest a moment and then go pick up your child. But what if my child is sleeping, she says. 
Well, I tell them, I don't believe in this whole ad-lib feeding, which just means that you feed the child when the child wants to be fed. I said, I'd rather you be the one who ad-lib feeds when you know that your child needs to be fed. And we know that the child needs to be fed every two and a half to three hours in those first five or six weeks. So you go over to the child and very nicely, gently pick the child up. You feed her or him and then keep her awake for a little while. Just talk to her, have the TV on, uh, play with her just a little bit. And then after that time, you're going to be able to be the controller of the hour and a half that you have left. So you can let your child sleep for that hour, hour and a half, and you're going to constantly have this little block. And so in each one of your hour and hour and a half, you're going to put one of your household items that you need to get done in that hour, hour and a half. Remember, you might have to take your children to school. You might be still cooking dinner. You might still have to clean. All of these things have to be put into that hour, hour and a half that goes after picking your child up, feeding her, and spending the time with that baby that needs to be spent changing the diaper, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes, wow, I never thought about that concept, that I am the ruler of my time, but my time comes in little capsules of three hours. I said, once you get you wrap your head around that, then you're the owner of the time and not the, the time, the owner of you. And by the time your child is six weeks old to eight weeks old, I guarantee you that if you continue to do that and you turn the lights off and you talk to your child very softly at night and you don't prolong the feeding times at night, that that child will start sleeping through the night and will sleep six hours by the time that child is six to seven to eight weeks of age. And I remember when I came up with this by reading the, the Ezo uh, 20 years ago. It's a book called Being, Becoming Baby Wise. And I said, ah, oh, that's a three-hour capsule. I get that. And I started thinking about that and making a schedule for myself. Well, I was about to start the practice six weeks after my daughter was born. And my husband looks over at me, and he sort of chuckles, and he says, you know, you're so type A that you want your child to be type A along with you. And and he laughed at me and said, that's not going to happen, you know. And so he had to eat his words because at five weeks and six days, I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I said, did I sleep through Hannah's, through Hannah's wake pattern? And he looked over at me, and <laughs> yep. he said, I'll be darned. That kid slept for six and a half hours all by herself. I said, it works. It works. It works. And when we come back, Dr. Rose, we're going to dig into later sleep patterns, later sleep problems uh, for families who haven't broken this early and now have kids in their teens, five, six, seven, eight years old, and even late teens who just can't get through the night and all the problems that occur from people who just don't sleep well. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking with our parent coach, Dr. Rose. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue now with our conversation 
with our parent coach, and I'm sorry for calling you that, Dr. Rose, but it, it, I think the shoe just fits. And, and ultimately, you work with kids and behavioral problems, but through your practice and many years doing what you do in North Carolina, uh, you've stumbled upon the insight that more often than not, it's the parents who lead to the kids' behavioral problems and not the other way around. And we were talking about sleep problems, sleep patterns, getting them established early, but now we're going to bore down on a particular patient. Talk to us about Alan. Oh, yes. Alan is, he is such a great kid today. But when mom brought him in because of his aggressive, uncontrollable behavior at home and at school, he was in dire straits. You see, the school couldn't keep him because he would go into these fits of rage at school. And because he's tall and and big and and looks like a football player, the school was afraid. They had to sometimes lock him up in a room because if he didn't get what he wanted, he would become a bully. And he would get into the teacher's face, into into other students' faces, and then they'd call the mom, and the mom had to stop whatever she was doing, whether she was at work or she was uh, at the supermarket, and come running and pick uh, Alan up so that he would not be a danger to the school anymore. So this is where this started, and he had also a diagnosis of autism, but it wasn't just autism. It was a lot of behavioral issues, and and they called it obsessive-compulsive disorder and, and an aggressive disorder as well. And so when he came, he was making very little eye contact. Uh, He would repeat things quite a bit. And the one thing that really alarmed me about, about Alan is that he was having very much trouble sleeping. And so he was seeing a psychiatrist who had him on four or five different psych meds. Uh, two of them for ADHD, one for depression, one for anxiety, and one for sleep. And with all of these medications, each one has a side effect. And I'm thinking, I don't know which one of these, these medications is actually causing some of these behavioral problems that he's having or his sleep pattern uh, changing. And I looked at mom, who's, looking, who's telling me, well, these are all the medications, and this is how I give it. And, and she also had him on melatonin, which is a natural sleep medication. And I said, I, I, I don't know how this started. And she told me that, well, he was very difficult to console at night uh, when he was a little boy, that he would mostly uh, sleep in the evenings and not, not uh, at night, and that he had to sleep with the TV on. And I said, well, all of those things are very bad behavior patterns for him. And the last thing that she said is that this this uh, young man couldn't sleep by himself so that he had to sleep with her. And so she was a single mom, and so they, they were sleeping together. And I said, that's not good for this young man because he had to know how to console himself, how to comfort himself, and how to help himself get to sleep. And he had to have the TV on, so therefore mom had to have the TV on, and mom wasn't able to sleep well with the TV going on at night. And so all of this, and this mom had developed this terrible uh, medical condition that was very real and is something that was going on inside her her brain like a brain tumor that was even making things more difficult. And, And Alan also has two other siblings. Oh, my goodness, I thought to myself, this poor mom, I don't know where to start with this. But let's start with sleep pattern, and that's where I I started. I said, 
he has to learn how to sleep at night, and he has to learn how to comfort himself and get himself to sleep, Mom. And so let's start with that, and let's get him to where he's tired by a reasonable hour that's about 9 o'clock. And so put him in a, in, in a, 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 a schedule. Mom didn't have a schedule for him, so he sort of would take a shower when he, he thought he was tired, and he would watch TV and try to find sleep. And I said, okay, that's not working. Let's put a schedule on him. Let's have him play outside or work outside for a certain amount of time, then have him come inside, do a little bit of his chores, eat, and then, and then take a shower, and then find himself in sleep. Take the TV out of the room. And do you have a place where he can sleep by himself? Oh, he's not going to want to do that. I said, not, none of us really want to do that. Have you ever asked a baby if he wants to sleep by himself? His answer is going to be no. And Alan's going to say no, too that he's got to learn how to sleep by himself. So finally, Mom bought into all this, and I said, he may not have you around. You have a tumor in your head. So you're going to have to teach him how to sleep by himself. Mom bought into that, too. And so Alan slowly started to be able to sleep through the night. And without my consent or without the, the psychiatrist's consent, she decided that one by one she was going to, turn, to throw those medications out and I would never have consented to, to that without the psychiatrist uh, agreeing to it. But within a few uh, months, she had taken him off of all of those medications, and Alan was sleeping through the night and was starting to behave better. But guess what? Because he was sleeping through the night, he was also starting to behave better at school and pay attention, and his grades started going up. When that happened, Alan started having self-confidence. And he started saying, I am better than a lot of those other kids that are teasing me and pushing me around and saying that I'm not worth anything. Mom didn't have to come in three times a week to pick him up. And finally, he started to be able to pay attention to people, to look them in the eyes, to respond to them properly. Today, Alan is in middle school. He's on the football team. He's able to read well. He's able to write well. He's getting A's. He's getting B's. He is proud of himself, and he is a good-looking young man. And Mom has worked through her tumor situation. She's gotten her operations. She's able to, to get through the day, day by day. She's looking at getting a job, and she's pulling her family out of that situation that they were in. And that was all by pulling that one child, little by little, and being able to set a sleep pattern for him so that the family was able to sleep and to rest and to be on normal sleep and wake times. And I would say, Dr. Rosa, that's, you know, the, the, the idea of not getting enough sleep, I think, is hitting so much of America. And I think all the technology is making it harder. Those clinking phones, the text messages getting you pinged, the, the TV going. I, I just wonder how sleep in, in general is affecting the whole country as well, Dr. Rose. I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more because the first thing that I said is get the TV out of the bedroom and there's no more tablet time two hours before bedtime. You see, the light in our tablets and our computers will simulate daylight. It, the brain will see that light very similarly the way that it sees daylight, light that is, is emanated by, by the sun. 
And so because of that, I said, so for two hours before bedtime, you're going to do restful things. You're going to start reading a little bit. You're going to start having maybe some sleepy time tea, uh, some chamomile tea around the table, and talking about your day and, and doing things that are much more peaceful than, than being isolated and being on the tablet and having an unrestful brain. This really worked for Alan, and I'm sure that it would work as well for a lot of people out there that are having these sleep problems uh, because of poor sleep hygiene and poor sleep patterns, but also our children. Yeah, I also think it's not uh, not, not just the, the light from these tablets, but the content from these tablets. It's so graphic. It's action-oriented. It's just getting the adrenaline flowing. And my goodness, how do you get to a peaceful state after having just watched Game of Thrones? How well, do you do re- it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I remember... Back when uh, videos first start coming out, and I loved Pac-Man, and who didn't? I, I mean, it, it was so much fun. Yeah. But I would go to sleep, and I'd be able to see that little Pac-Man guy eating dots. Yep. And I had dreams with Pac-Man. <laughs> well, that's not healthy. And our children thinking about all these things and these mind crafts, even if, you know, building stuff is good. Yep. But... That doesn't mean that this is a worthy thing to constantly be putting into our children's minds. So think about that. I like to limit the screen time, especially tablet screen time, to one hour a day. Does that seem impossible? Then we should start thinking about what is possible because we have too much of what I call junk food for the brain that we're exposing our children to. And saying no isn't the worst thing in the world. Letting our children be the ones to dictate how much screen time they do have is possibly going to be one of the worst things in the world in the outcome for our children. Couldn't agree more, and we've found, at least with ours, that when we say yes to things like horseback riding and karate, one thing you can't do when you're riding a horse in the barn is play with your tablet. It's not working. It's not happening. It doesn't go out to the barn, and it doesn't come back from the barn. And by the way, if you've horseback ridden for an hour and a half or two hours, you're exhausted. And, and then you go to sleep after a little meal and a shower. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Dr. Rose, and she's our resident parent coach. And Dr. Rose, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It has been such a pleasure. Same here. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you've ever had a chance to see the musical about Carole King on Broadway, you must. It's terrific. What a life she lived. And she was very young, very precocious, and had a real writing talent. And she wrote this song, and that's her singing this song. And she was honored recently 
at the Kennedy Center in the Kennedy Center Honors, which is, I think, perhaps the greatest honor any artist, scientist, public servant can have. I'm speaking for them, but I've, I've heard many of them say it. And it was quite a night, and we're going to get to that night, but just a little backstory, because that song that Carol King wrote, along with Jerry Wexler and her partner for so many years, Jerry Goffin, was a huge hit for her on the album Tapestry, but it was the record that it was a hit, not the single. And there was this remarkable singer in Detroit, an African-American singer, and she had been signed by CBS Records to a pop career that fizzled and was dropped. And the folks at A&R, Atlantic Records, well, they had other ideas and other intentions. And the young woman's name is Aretha Franklin, African-American girl from Detroit, born in Memphis, collides with a song written by this Jewish girl from Manhattan. And, well, let's take a listen to what happens. Here's Aretha Franklin's version of Carol King's version that you just heard. And that's what happens, folks, when a great songwriter meets a great singer. And what a story of race in America. This wasn't planned by any chance and by any choice. But the soulfulness of Carole King's songwriting and the soulfulness of Aretha Franklin's singing merged. And where did they merge? In the oddest of places, not in some fancy recording studio in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. But a little tiny place in Alabama, a little tiny recording studio called Muscle Shoals in the town of Muscle Shoals, and a band of young white kids called the Swampers. And in the great movie Muscle Shoals, which you all must see, there's a great moment where Aretha Franklin, this urban girl, walks into this farm town studio with a bunch of hick musicians, and no one knows what to think or say. And so she does what any good musician would do. She sits down at the piano, and she just starts to sing and play the universal language of music. She walks in right over there, and she's got this aura around her pretty thick. I mean, the girl was special. I remember watching the guys being good southern boys. They carry on with anything except looking or dealing with her. 
So she walked right over to the piano. She sat there a moment. And then she just hit this unknown chord, I would say. Didn't anybody have to say we're about to cut? We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I think we heard a little demo of this song, Never Loved the Man Who I Love You. To me, it sounded pretty much like junk. I'm thinking, that's a song they're going to cut? And they went on to cut that song first. And then just a couple of other good ones, like the one you heard Carol King sing and Aretha, and also a little tiny one called Respect. And then many more. And the Swampers ultimately left the studio of Rick Hall, started their own deal. Watch the documentary. It's amazing. It's about race in America. It's about music. It's about so much. Now let's take it back to what we were talking about. And it's that Kennedy Center honors. And there's Carol King up in the booth sitting next to the President of the United States. And all these different performers come out to sing their versions of their favorite Carol King song. And the last woman who shows up comes in, sits down at that piano, just like she did all those years back in the late 1960s at Muscle Shoals. And let's take you there to the Kennedy Center. Aretha Franklin! Now, while Aretha is sitting at the keyboard singing, I mean, the audience is mesmerized. And I got to tell you, there's barely a dry eye in the house because everybody's looking up at Carole King. And Carole King is just crying like a, well, like a baby because she was witnessing something so beautiful. Again, these two people from such different walks of life centered around a beautiful, beautiful love story because that's what this song is in the end about a man who makes a woman feel like a natural woman. And boy, don't we all as men want to do that? Be the guy in that song. And so then Aretha gets up. She's wearing a mink coat. And she slowly takes off the mink coat. Not in a striptease, believe me. But in this elegant way. Walks up to the center of the stage. And then she just starts to belt. Like only Aretha can. The audience rises this gets out on YouTube, and I mean, it just goes viral. Because, well, this ain't rap, this ain't country, this ain't even rock. 
This is something different, folks. When Aretha's singing like this, this is God. This is unbelievable. More from the Kennedy Center right here. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Celebrating the life, the art, the work of the great Carol King in concert with the great Aretha Franklin. Only in America. American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on This Day in History, Elizabeth Cady Stanton died one of the heroes of the women's suffrage movement. And last year, our own Alex Cortez, our field correspondent and producer, spoke with Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic, about her. Pat has written over 80 books on leadership. And in his book, How to Be Like Women of Influence, a book I highly recommend picking up on Amazon, Pat tells the story there of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and what we can learn from her life. Now we bring you their conversation. In your book, I read that Elizabeth's brother died at an early age and it really impacted their father. Can you tell us the story about Elizabeth going into their family parlor with only their casket and her father in the room and, and what happened from there? Well, it was very interesting because the father was devastated by the death of uh, the son. Uh, Elizabeth went into him and sat on his lap and said that uh, she wished that she could have been a boy at that point. Boys were everything. Uh, Women were not much at all. They were there to raise children, basically. And uh, Katie Stanton cared about her father, but she was quite wounded, you know, that she couldn't be to the father what the son was. And so that really started a crusade in her life, I think. What did she do from there? Did she try to fill her brother's shoes at all? And if so, what was her dad's response? Well, she tried, but she couldn't. You know, at that point, this father uh, loved her and accepted her, but not, uh, not nothing like the son who died. And uh, I think that really fueled Elizabeth Cady, who later became Stanton, by the way. I think that fueled her the rest of her life in this crusade to help women become everything they could be and live to their full potential. I think that's really what drove her. You also write about her cousin Garrett Smith and the impact uh, he had on her. Can you tell us about that. Well, Garrett Smith was a abolitionist. By the way, he became very famous later 
with his help to John Brown. Now, that's a whole other story. Uh, but Garrett Smith is the one who introduced her to Harriet. Uh, Harriet was a slave. Garrett Smith was part of the Underground Railroad up in New York State. And uh, he took uh, young Elizabeth and some of her cousins up to meet Harriet, uh, who was stored up there in this room, you know, waiting to make her move to get into Canada. And uh, these young girls uh, spent quite a long time with Harriet, learning about her life. And that also uh, left a deep imprint on, on young Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So these early experiences in her life really were those that uh, triggered everything she did as an adult, I feel. Talk about the merging of the abolitionist and suffrage movement and the interesting intersections and, and partnerships. And uh, I thought it particularly unorthodox. You write about the honeymoon Elizabeth went on. You know, she went on a honeymoon uh, with her new husband. And by the way, they ended up being married for 47 years, produced seven children. But uh, it was interesting because uh, there was this abolitionist movement going on and also uh, the rights of women. And so uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and uh, William Lloyd Garrison was another key person here. They were frustrated that they were doing all this for the Negroes, as they were called then, you know, and the abolition of slavery. But uh, the women were being forgotten, so it seemed almost wrong. I mean, I guess that's the best word. It just didn't make sense to Elizabeth uh, that uh, these uh, the women were being forgotten while all the efforts were made to end slavery. I think that's the best way I can summarize it. And that, that world's anti-slavery convention did inspire her to start the Women's Rights Convention in, in Seneca Falls. But many of the abolitionists you write about didn't forget about her, that there were the only papers that covered her conventions. Yeah, and it was also at that time that uh, she met Susan B. Anthony. And that, that merger of those two powerful women uh, really changed the course of American history, along with uh, Lucretia Mott. Uh, she doesn't get quite the publicity of these other two women. But it's interesting, there's a statue uh, memorializing those three women in Washington, a monument to those three. But uh, that trio, that uh, that little team, uh, ended up changing the course of American history. Can you tell us more about her relationship with Susan B. Anthony? I mean, many folks, when they think about the suffrage movement, just think about Susan. But you actually write that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the driving force of the movement. Well, she was, but she was raising seven children. And so her, she was limited in what she could do outside of the home, but she uh, was a wonderful writer. And uh, she triggered uh, so much of this through her writing. Uh, and uh, Susan B. Anthony was more out front. As a result, to, the, to this day, Susan B. Anthony is probably listed first uh, when these two women are mentioned. Uh, but uh, I guess... I guess it's safe to say that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, behind the scenes to a large degree in those days, uh, was really the driving force. And Susan B. Anthony became more of the face. But let's just say the secret of their success, uh, they were a great team together. And, and by the way, that is so true of so many teams that we see, for example, in business. Uh, Hewlett and Packard and uh, Walt and Roy Disney and 
Rich DeVos and Jay Van Andel. I mean, they have different type personalities, but they work beautifully together as a result and get things done. That's a certain humility on all those leaders' parts, too? Oh, I think so. I think that uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had a humble spirit. She was not, not out to promote herself. Uh, what what these women really wanted were uh, was was the right to vote, and uh, finally, uh, you know, Wyoming and Utah were the first two states. Although why Utah didn't last initially, Wyoming it did. But it took till 1920 uh, for women uh, to get the right to vote. My mother, for example, was born in 1914. So uh, the first six years of her life as a little girl, women couldn't vote. That kind of brings it into perspective. Yeah, can you speak about that path, the patience that it took them? I, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people forget and feeling like social change needs to happen immediately. And it also reminds me of William Wilberforce, too. Well, I guess the lesson is uh, be patient. You know, you, you can have great goals and great desire to get things done. But uh, in many, many cases, it's not going to happen overnight. And that's certainly the example that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her team uh, show to us today. Uh, you've got to persevere. Uh, you've got to have tenacity. You, uh, you can't get discouraged when things don't happen overnight. Uh, so that's a good lesson for all of us, male and female, young and old, to uh, hang in there. Uh, eventually, uh, many things in the world of uh, change, the world of history, you know, they they get done, but it's not going to happen overnight in every case. And, and this discussion we're having, you know, certainly proves that. Further different roles, um, you, you, I think you talk about a little bit in the book that Elizabeth was more of the agitator. Is that one of the reasons, too, that she wasn't as public? I know there was partially the reason that she was a mother of all these children, but was it also a strategic decision from their part uh, that the more gentle Susan be out front? Well, I think as we talked, uh, you know, these uh, these great teams, uh, Lewis and Clark, and, you know, you go on and on. There's some wonderful examples throughout every phase of history. They generally have two different personalities. I think if you had the same type personalities, you could have real conflict. It, it may not work as well. Probably wouldn't. may not work at all. But in this case, again, uh, Elizabeth and Susan B. Anthony had the, the right mix uh, of talent and personality and makeup. And as a result, those when, when all that was merged together, uh, you had this wonderful, wonderful combination, uh, you know, or a, well, let's call it a combo platter. How does that sound of, <laughs> of, uh, of ingredients? And uh, the end result was these two women spearheaded uh, so much that got done. And then uh, little Lucretia Mott, you got to put her in the mix as well. Uh, she came along and was, was part of this team, although not as famous. But the end result is a fascinating story uh, to study the life of these two women, uh, two titans, really, and uh, two impact ladies that uh, really changed the course of America and the world. One final thing I want to read is there's a quote uh, you have in your book from Elizabeth's speech before Congress, The Solitude of Self, that I just thought was beautiful. Uh, Nature never repeats herself, and the possibilities of one human soul will never be found in another. Can you talk about this and, and how much America and the world lost until uh, suffrage came to be a reality? 
Well, isn't that a great statement? Uh, you know, God made us all different. Every single one of us comes down to, uh, into this world with different skills, different makeup. Uh, there are no two, uh, two of us who are exactly alike. And uh, so I think the lesson here is be yourself. Take your talents and your gifts and your desires and your passions and live them out to the fullest. Be who you're meant to be. I think that's really the lesson here. And so uh, when you think about all the great talent that women possess, uh, it wasn't until 1920 that they fully got the right to vote and really uh, be who they were meant to be. And there you have it, our This Day in History story, as always brought to us by Hillsdale College. Elizabeth Cady Stanton died today on This Day in History in 1902. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to talk about the life of Pat Conroy. And if you don't know him, you're going to and we're done and you're going to like him. And he was a great American writer. The Great Santini and The Prince of Tides were turned into two of the finest movies about fathers and sons. And my goodness, Pat Conroy had a tough dad. A Marine Corps fighter pilot who, as he often said, was raised to be in war, but never got to fight in one. So the home front became a battlefield. And I think some of the most honest writing about craziness in family, and every family's got some crazy in it, and father and son relationships are some of the toughest and the greatest writers have dug down deep into that well from Arthur Miller straight to Bruce Springsteen. And I think it's what makes those guys all so good, and what brings them so close to their audience is the writing, honestly, about their fathers. Fathers they love and, in many respects, hate. And so I wanted to have you hear a little bit about Pat Conroy and his life. First, here's Pat talking about his mom. The reading life was inspired, without question, by my mother. And I did not realize this, that when my mother read to me and my brothers and sisters every day, before we went to bed at night. I did not realize that would become my writing voice, the voice I would hear when I'd go to a table. That would become the voice I'd read to my own children when I taught in school, when I read something to my wife. I did not understand she was plotting this thing to take over my life. Because one thing about my mother, she made me obsessed with books. And not only obsessed, I lived through books, and not living through books was not living itself. And my mother, we're not sure she got out of high school, but she taught herself, and she ate up every single library of every town we ever entered. No one ever checked out more books than Peg Conroy. Again, his mom never goes to college, inspires her son to read, and he becomes one of America's finest novelists. So... Never take for granted what influence, folks, you have as parents on your kids' lives. Books were life-changing to Pat Conroy. Take a listen to this. Well, books are life-changing. 
I try to write the, about the life-changing books. I try to write the books that led me to others, and that is one of the great gifts of books. You read one, and it leads you on a pathway that you did not know you would take. Uh, when I went to England, I did not have any idea. By turning a corner, I would read the complete works of Dickens. Turn another corner, I'd read the complete works of Thackeray. Uh, look across the street, and Yeats would flower open for me. Uh, Jane Austen. I mean, I, it, it occurred to me so many times that I had to become aware of just what would be happening at the time it happened. But that was one of the glories of living to me, not one of the sorrows. He tells a story here in this interview about how after one of his successful books, The Prince of Tides, which is really dark and really tough, and it's clearly about his family and craziness in his family, a smug, young, very seemingly happy couple comes up and, well, they seem to think that they're very different than the lives he's writing about. Listen to Pat Conroy's exchange with this one particular fellow. Yeah, I think The Prince of Times just came out. And he says, hey, man, your family's nuts, huh? I said, yeah, pretty much so. He said, boy, you can sure tell it from reading that book. I said, yeah, you can. I said, how's your family, pal? And he looks at me and says, oh, my family's great, great. I said, now that we're having a conversation, let's be honest. How far? Do we have to go before we hit the first crazy in your family? <laughs> Mom, <laughs> dad, sister, brother, aunt. His wife broke and finally said, his mother's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> She's completely nuts. And I said, see what I mean? I said, generally, it's not far from any of us. It's, you know, it's around the corner there. Sometimes in my family, it's much closer than I'm comfortable with. Much closer. But that's the thing about writing and real writing. It makes us all feel less alone. So what would you like the fans to get out of their reading life? Take a listen. I would like people, my readers, my fans, to get out of my reading life this. I would like them to see it as the beginning of a journey. I'd like them to see what happened to me in my journey. Because the one thing I can promise them, if they take it seriously, if they are serious readers, if they are serious imaginers, if they are serious thinkers, they don't know where this journey is going to end. It's a voyage of a lifetime. It will end with my last conscious thought on Earth. It's taken me places I could not believe. I've traveled parts of the globe I would not be there except for reading. I've visited the graves of poets in Crete. I've visited Balzac's grave in France. I've gone to graves all over Europe just because I fell in love with these men and women who are no longer alive, who once filled my brain with utter wonder, who wanted me to write like them, who wanted me to make characters and build characters, invent cities, invent people. They were so magnificent, people would never be able to keep their hands off my books again, like these ones that went before me, like these writers who made up my reading life. And you're listening to Pat Conroy, and we're spending an hour on this man's life, because wait till you hear the audio to come. 
talk about a storyteller. And when he opens up about the really difficult, difficult life with his father, well, there's a little bit of that in every father and son relationship and some much more than we'd care to admit. And so when we come back, we're going to hear from the man who wrote The Great Santini, the man who wrote The Prince of Tides, and then the man who wrote his only piece of nonfiction that really hit the bestseller list, The Death of Santini, and that's the death of his father, when he really opened up and let it all, let it all out. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We celebrate everything here, including great writing and great literature. More after this. tradition of Patton and MacArthur. Bull Meacham lived to be a soldier, but he didn't have a war, so he fought the world around him. They called him the Great Santini. You may now have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me. Has the Great Santini ever let his family down? Yes! You don't trust the Great Santini? No! I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was God. To that special breed of sky devil known and feared throughout the world, Marines. Now you're flying with Bull Meacham now. This is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard. He was a man of war, but it was a time of peace. Hey, Dad, are you ever afraid when you fly? Hell yes. That's what makes me so damn good. And that's the trailer of the movie, The Great Santini. And Robert Duvall was never better. He may have been as good in The Apostle and several other films, including The Godfather. But I think he'd tell you, Bull Meacham, that character. Well, you saw his character in Apocalypse, too, where he played that crazy, crazy soldier sitting in the middle of the the killing fields of Vietnam and screaming, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. But let me tell you, Bull Meacham, what a character. And Pat Conroy was born on this day in history, in 1945. And we're covering his story today. And in his words, and before we do that, I want to play a couple of scenes for the great Santini. And if you have not seen this movie, rent it. And you'll love it. And Blythe Danner is amazing in this. And that's Gwyneth Paltrow's mom. Quite an actress. And then rent Prince of Tides. And you'll have really gotten a glimpse of the life of Pat Conroy and the work of Pat Conroy, because those two movies actually and genuinely reflect the character of the novels. And then it'll make you want to read those books, if you're a reader, and even if you're not, because you will not be able to put them down. Here is Robert Duvall, Bull Meacham, the great Santini, giving a pep talk to his soldiers in that movie. Pitching on deck. Seats, gentlemen. Morning. 
You may not have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me. Now, I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was, well, God. If I say something, you pretend it's coming from the burning bush. Now, we're members of the proudest, most elite group of fighting men in the history of the world. We are Marines, Marine Corps fighter pilots. We have no other function. That is our mission. And you're either going to hack it or pack it. Do you read me? Within 30 days, I'm going to lead the toughest flying of sons of bitches in the world. The 312 Werewolf Squadron will make history or it will die trying. Now, you're flying with Bull Meacham now, and I kid you not, this is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Carry on. And just moments later in this movie and in the book, we see this. This man could not treat his family any differently than he could treat his soldiers. And this was, in the end, what the book was really about. Let's take a listen to Duval instilling some discipline into his kids. Okay, Hogs, I've listened to you bellyache about moving to this new town. This said bellyaching will end as a 1530 hours, will not affect the morale of the squadron henceforth. Do I make myself clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I know it's rough to leave your friends and move every year. But you are marine kids and can chew nails while other kids are sucking cotton candy. And you're Meacham's. Meacham's a thoroughbred, a winner all the way. Gets the best grades, wins the most awards, and excels in sports. Meacham never gives up. I want you hogs to let this bird know you're here. I want these crackers to wake up and wonder what the hell blew in a town. Okay, hogs, by nightfall I want this camp and inspection order. Do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I said, do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. Outstanding. Sergeant, dismiss the troops. Dismiss. He does remind me of someone from the movies, but it's not Rhett Butler. No, it's not. And then you'd start to see, of course, there's a little bit of charm there and you're laughing. But then that that military discipline turns ugly in the movie and it becomes demented and in the end warped and it destroys the family. And Pat Conroy was one of those little boys listening to those kind of lectures. And then the question Pat had in his head, what do I do with this life and this knowledge? And he decides to, well, write about it and write about it and write about it. And interestingly enough, Though his dad was mean to him and his dad beat his wife and his dad was tough on the family and broke the family up and drove the family crazy, he still loved his dad. And in a fascinating discussion that he had with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013, and Ann is another terrific writer, he was with her to talk about the book The Death of Santini. Because in the end, when his dad died, well, he needed to... He needed to write about him, honestly. 
And this was the hardest book he ever had to write, and it was a piece of nonfiction. This great fiction writer now finally able to tell the real, real, unbridled truth about his dad now that he passed. And Conroy tells the story about what it was like to tour with his dad when the books The Great Santini and The Prince of Tides were, well, making him a famous author around this country. What would happen if you and I were talking here tonight, you would see a hulking figure in the background that would appear on stage. He'd break in and figure out a way to come out and sit there to join the conversation. And eventually he would take over the conversation. But I got moved when he, the great Santini came out and he hated that book with his body and soul. He hated everything about it. He hated my portrait of him as a father, as a husband, as a Marine. He loathed that book. But I was attacked by his family enough that as I was signing the great Santini and you know, and you know those first books you just mentioned, you know, I had, I think, 12 intergalactic sales <laughs> during that season. But I noticed Dad would come and sit beside me. And he got in the habit of signing my books with me. <laughs> now, for, for Dad, with, you know, he would sign this way with the great Santini. I certainly hope you enjoy my son's work of fiction. And he would underline <laughs> fiction. He'd underlined fiction five or six times. And he said, my son certainly has a, an extraordinary imagination. <laughs> and he would sign, oh, lovable, likable, Don Conroy, the great Santini himself. This is kind of normal for the great Santini. He did it for every book I wrote after that. Here's more about his dad. One time I had a big signing in Charlotte of four or five hours. Dad was beside me the whole time. And I got to translate this way, and it may be wrong. I thought it was my father, who was an articulate man, inarticulate man with love. Um, it was his way of telling me he loved me. Because when I, you know, when the Prince of Tides came out, and I said, Dad, what are you signing the Prince of Tides for? And my father, in his great modesty, said, I am the seed, son. <laughs> I am the source. And I said, Dad, you sound like it's a, you know, it's a, it's a cattle food shop. But it was his way of participating in a creative event that I came to appreciate very much. What compassion. You feel it bleeding through the pages, even as he's the toughest critic of his own dad. To love a man, to try and understand why that man did what he did, that's why Pat Conroy's work is loved. I love that he said, quote, My dad was an articulate man, but inarticulate with love. Don't we all know a few fathers like that? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life, the work of a great writer, Pat Conroy, author of The Great Santini, The Prince of Tides, both of which were turned into two terrific movies. This is Our American Stories, more on Pat Conroy from Pat Conroy, who was born on this day in history.
Papa go to bed now It's getting late Nothing we can say Is gonna change anything now I believe in in the morning From St. Mary's Gate We wouldn't change this thing Even if we could somehow Cause the darkness of this house Has got the best of us There's a darkness in this town That's got us too But they can't touch me now And you can't touch me now They ain't gonna do to me What I watch them do to you So say goodbye It's Independence Day This is Lee Habib And this is Our American Stories That's Bruce Springsteen Singing a goodbye song to his father It's what's drawn a lot of people to his music It is certainly what drew people to Arthur Miller's work The father-son relationships and the strains And it is most certainly what drew people to Pat Conroy's work The Great Santini and the Prince of Tides in particular And of course his non-fiction work, The Death of Santini Which was about his father And so were the other two In very clear and stark terms and Pat grew up in Georgia, but he was, a, he was a Marine brat. So he grew up on bases all over the country. And his father, as we learned early on in this hour, was a man who was built for war, but never got to really fight one throughout the childhood of young Pat Conroy. And so the home field, battlefield, was what Pat experienced with his dad. And so we pick it up with his conversation with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013. Did Dad change because of the fiction? This became the question Ann Patchett had. Did Dad learn something reading about himself through his son's eyes? You know, I've never seen a guy change because of a, a work of fiction. But I think Dad made an effort, and my mother divorcing him at the same time. And, you know, my father, now here's my father. Okay, son, and I, I went to talk with Dad, and I said, Dad, and he's weeping, which Dad never did. He's weeping, oh, I've got divorce papers from your mother. And he's crying, we're at Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta, he's weeping and crying. And I said, Dad, do you see what you did wrong now? Do you understand what you did wrong? And poor Dad going, yeah. And I said, what do you think it was, Dad? He said, I was way too easy on your mother and the kids. I should have cracked down harder. And I look at him from across the table. I said, Dad, Caligula couldn't have cracked down hard. <laughs> and he said, no, no. This is. He goes to the judge. My mother has given the judge a copy of the great Santini <laughs> and said, it's all here, Your Honor. <laughs> My mother and sister testified on scenes in the great Santini I had invented. I had made up. So, and Dad gets up in court, and this is in Buford, South Carolina, he says, you cannot divorce me, Judge. And so the judge, rather surprised, said, oh, really, why not, Colonel? 
because I'm a Roman Catholic. And when the family hear this, we all, and he said, I was married forever. And this court has no power to divorce me and Peg. He was divorced about five minutes later. <laughs> but it was dad. It was that, you know, that Marine hard charging guy that never changed. That was dad. And you hear that love in his voice and you hear the audience laughing at something very tragic and not a silly laugh. And that's a unique gift. And when you read a Pat Conroy book, you laugh a lot at the tragedy. He does not play the victim card and he has no countenance for it. None. What was his first memory? My first memory was of being in a high chair. And I was in a base in El Toro. And I remember my father beating my mother, backhanding her to the floor, with her trying to stab him with a butcher knife. And I remember my face, my whole baby face, um, inflamed. And I had... You know, I didn't know how to talk then. And what it was inflamed with, I later realized, was hatred. And I didn't know there was an English word for hatred. So I didn't have to go back for that. That is always with me. That lives with me every day. Uh, I, you know, don't have to do research on it, study it. It is there. It is there. Here he is talking with Ann Patchett about the process he went through with his editors when he was submitting the great Santini. And the editors just couldn't believe that a man this tough and this mean existed. And, well, Pat had to take some liberties. Let's take a listen to this exchange. I would write her these things, and instantly she would write back, Pat, no one will believe this character. He's too mean He's too horrible. You know, you, he's not believable, and we will not publish your book. So I kept trying to add scenes, and I got my brothers and sisters together, and I said, did Dad ever screw up and treat us nicely <laughs> when we were growing up? And I, then I was very serious. And we would think, and you know, we were seven of us then, and we'd think, and I'd think, and finally came up now. I said, you get us a hot dog? Nah. <laughs> take us out for an ice cream cone? Nah. Uh, take us to a ball game? Nah. We could not come up with anything. But Ann Barrett would not believe a guy was knocking us all over the place, hitting us, beating my mother to a pulp. She would not believe it. So I cut that out, and I made up stories that I'd like Dad to have done. He gives his son a flight jacket on his birthday. And I thought, what a nice thing that would have been. So I enjoyed writing that scene that never happened. Then his daughter goes to her first prom, and Dad has roses sent to the house. And so when later I asked Dad, did you like those scenes, Dad? Oh, God, I love those scenes. You know, what a great guy I was. <laughs> And I said, Dad, I made them up. You didn't do any of it. Anything you did nice in the book, I invented. Ouch. But they still stayed together, this father and son team. 
And it turns out that Pat Conroy, well, when he wrote Prince of Tides, it got a little rougher on dad, on the father figure. And then when his dad died, well, Pat Conroy was actually finally able to tell the full and complete truth. And when we come back, you're going to hear Pat Conroy talk, well, as starkly as one can about his father, and as humorously, because you're going if you're laughing now, you're going to laugh even harder. The stories he tells are priceless, they're tragic, they're sad, they're funny. Conroy knew how to walk that walk. He loved his dad. He didn't judge his dad. He just spoke honestly and plainly about life as he saw it. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life, the work, the fiction, the brutal, beautiful honesty of Pat Conroy writing about his beloved dad, whom he hated and loved simultaneously. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the hour, the life of Pat Conroy. If you don't know his work, pick it up. Go to Amazon. Get the great Santini, and then read The Death of Santini. Want a work of fiction about his dad? And then when he finally dies, a work of nonfiction. You cannot put down either. And they're funny. They're wickedly funny. They're not silly. And Conroy was born this day in history in 1945 and so we're celebrating his life here on our american stories we love music we love the arts we've done a tremendous hour in martin scorsese al pacino and so many other creative types and we'll be doing many more on literary lions as we go as well and let's go back to that nashville room in 2013 with ann patchett the great writer interviewing one of her literary heroes pat conroy we just heard that story about his dad and ann patchett asks a tough question and here's pat's rather i think sad answer so do you think you're putting it to rest with this book of course not i i will bring havoc you know i am worried that i'll bring havoc until my deathbed. Uh, the Conroys can't have a wedding, a funeral. We can't do anything normally. None of us. And he says it just so straightforwardly, and he doesn't hate his family. He just, this is the way it is. And we all know families like that, by the way. You get them together, and oh my goodness, there goes the wedding, there goes the baseball game, <laughs> there goes everything. And yet they still get together. So, here's a, well, just a ridiculously funny and sad story 
right out of the death of Santini about his father dying. When dad was actually dying, we split time up with the six kids. Right. And, you know, six-hour intervals because we wanted to give dad a good death. We wanted to, you know, take care of dad and make sure he was comfortable, make sure he knew he was loved and all this stuff. And I came over, you know, for a morning shift and I hear my sister Carol, who's a poet in New York, the most articulate, you know, of all of us. And I hear her screaming at dad. And I walk inside and dad is gonna he's gonna be dead in three days. I mean it's it's soon. And Carol is screaming this, Anne. You gotta tell me you love me, Dad. You gotta tell me you love me. And she has tears streaming down his face. You gotta tell me you're proud of me, Dad. Proud of my life as a poet. You know, I've made a life as a poet. And it's been hard. It's been in New York City, and I've done it by myself. But you gotta tell me you love me, and you gotta tell me you're proud of me before you die. Now, this is moving to me as anything can be. So I go in, and of course, I'm the oldest of seven, and I was the you know, the protector, the lookout, the Rottweiler for the other kids. So I was. Carol said later, he wagged the finger of paternalism. <laughs> and so I wagged it at her. She comes out, and she's just a wreck. And, just, and she's had a lifetime of mental illness. She's had a lifetime of estrangement from the family. And she comes out, and I said, Carol, it's very important for you to know something. Dad is dying. He's not going deaf. You don't have to scream at him. And Carol is a wreck. And she says, Pat, he's never told me he loves me in his whole life. He never told me he's proud of me in his whole life. I've written poems. I've dedicated poems to Dad over and over again. I've done everything I could to make him proud of me. I've needed him my whole life just to tell me he loved me. And... Does he ever tell you that? And I said, Carol, to tell you the truth, every day the phone rings, and I pick it up, and it's dead. It's been going on for 30 years. And the phone rings, and it's dad on the phone. And I said, hey, dad, how you doing? And he said, Pat, I just have to tell you this. I love you so much, I cannot even tell you or express it in words. <laughs> and Pat, I am so proud of your writing <laughs> that it makes me want to fall to my knees in gratitude for the day that you were born. And I only wish I could feel the same way about Carol. <laughs> He finishes this story. So I finally, I said, Carol, I'm jo joking. Dad cannot tell us we lo he loves us. He cannot tell us, you know, he's proud of us. It's the great Santini dying in there. It's not Bill Cosby, okay? 
we know that. We've got to learn how to translate that. And, you know, the translation is, it isn't that hard. Dad has tried to show us he's loved us in his own way. Well, I get Carol to come back in. <laughs> so we are sitting there in my redneck brother-in-law, Bobby Joe. <laughs> now, I ain't got to explain to no Tennessee audience what a redneck is, okay? <laughs> but when I tell you Bobby Joe makes your relatives look like Rockefellers, <laughs> and you cannot figure out who your brothers and sisters are going to marry. That is part of life. It's most difficult. Bobby Joe comes in, <laughs> and his redneck as they come, and he looks over my father, and he goes, Hey, old man, how you feeling? Dad would be dead in two and a half days. I hear him say in a weakened voice, I love you, Bobby Joe. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Bobby Joe. And my sister goes off like a Roman candle and she goes for his throat with both hands and both of us have to pull Carol off my dying father. And that came out of the Death of Santini, this remarkable book that Ann Patchett was discussing with Pat Conroy. And here is Ann talking about her thoughts about Pat Conroy's book and this exchange. But Ann, this is the kind of thing that, you know, that haunts me and follows me and hunts me down whether I want to or not. This is so confusing, though, and this is your brilliance. You're making us laugh. You're making us laugh. I laughed my head off through this book, and it is a tragedy. I mean, it's the saddest book in the world, and I was gasping. I was laughing so hard. See, Anne, I, you know, I cannot... Uh, see, and I, you know, I t tell you that you know, these are horrible stories. You know, when my brother, I had a brother commit suicide. It was the worst things ever happened to us. He was the youngest brother. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. He leaps off a building, 14-story building, in Columbia, South Carolina, and he is a disaster. In, I mean, we have to bury him almost the next day because it's the middle of August, and his head is just, everything has come apart. And they scrape him up. And we've got to get this thing together. And my father, you know, and dad, you know, he gets on the phone. I said, Dad, are you okay? And my father, again, is crying so hard. And he says to me, and this nearly broke my heart, Ann. He says, Pat, I lost my baby boy. You don't know what it's like to lose your baby. And you don't. And then he was asked why he didn't write this book when he was young, this first raw piece of nonfiction. And he gave a great answer. Okay, here's what would have happened. 
and I can answer this honestly, Ann. Father Jim is at the podium. We have come here to celebrate the life and death of Pat Conroy. <laughs> he was killed my bro- by my brother, who is now in federal penitentiary, in a fit of rage. I could not have done it when I was younger. I was still too full of denial. I had to go through therapy. I had to find out things about myself I did not know. I'd have to find out things about myself I hated, and I couldn't have written it then. And that's the truth, and that is what is so compelling about this final work. He needed his father to die in order to really dig in. And we're talking about the life of Pat Conroy for the hour. He was born this day in history, in 1945. And again, that last book, a piece of nonfiction called The Death of Santini, you can just read that alone and know everything you need to know about this author, his life, and his father's life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Pat Conroy's story, born this day in history. 